so good to see all of you this morning and um, just want to, you know, for those of you who are kind of new here today, just encourage you um, to, you know, ask questions. So I know what's going on here at um, Wiley Baptist Church. The series we've been going through is a series that says, it's called Becoming His Church. And, you know, that's what I hope is the goal of every Christian at every church that we are constantly on this journey, this path of, of trying to become the church that God uh, called us to be. And that that's, that's very much connected to the gospel, the gospel that we're teaching, the gospel that we're preaching and believing. And so, you know, when I, I was listening, and I would like to tell you I planned all this out, but I really didn't. When we were, I mean, I did plan it, but not this way when Nora was reading Psalms, you know, and she was reading that, you know, it sounds kind of depressing in a way. It's like, you know, God, when are you going to, you know, relieve all of this suffering? When are you, you know, or my enemies aren't going to be triumphant over me? But what is so awesome about that, and it tells you something about a mature faith, that no relief is even sensed by the psalmist. And yet that ends with, blessed be the name of the Lord. If we're going to be his church, we're going to be his church that preaches and tries to live his full gospel. Not just the part, not just the part. And by the way, if you're not a believer today, or if you're just a young believer, just understand this. That's what I'm about to say is okay for you. But for those of us who've been in the faith, we need to constantly be learning more and more of what the full gospel is. So if you're not a believer and you've come here and you're, you're searching, you're, you're, you feel a sense of hopelessness or no purpose or, or you're struggling in this different areas of your life and you've come here looking for answers, we want to provide answers. If you've come here not knowing even what you're missing. And today you're going to hear about the gospel and, and you realize what, what Jesus Christ can do in your life and f- perhaps might even do it this morning. That's great. That's awesome. But that's only part of the gospel. And those of you who've been here long enough, just humor me for a second because you've heard this before. God doesn't save us just to save us. He doesn't... He doesn't send Jesus to save us, to redeem us, just to save us, just to redeem us. He doesn't bless us just to bless us. No. He he blesses us. He saves us. He redeems us to restore to us the purpose that he had for us from the very beginning. There's a reason behind it. It's not simply that my life will be better. It's not simply that I can go through the storms of life better. God is preparing us. He wants to use us. And if you notice in that psalm, it talked about, when it was talking about all the laments, it said, and I don't get to go to battle. See, when you read that, and when I read that, in modern sense, it's like, oh, phew, I don't have to go to war. But the psalmist is not saying, That's great. The psalmist is saying, I don't even have, you don't even want me to go out and fight battles. I don't know what God has in store for our church. I don't know what he has in store for our individual lives, but I want to be a church that God wants to use. And as we've been talking about in the book of Acts, when God starts using his church and his church starts being the church that it's called to be, there's going to be battles. And that shouldn't scare us. That should be like, awesome, God, you love us, you trust us, you've empowered us, you've equipped us so much that you trust us out there, that you want to use us. It's what it, for me, when I think about becoming his church, I, I cannot... I cannot think that his church is just to create a safe place. Just to create a safe place where I can come. I want the church to be a safe place. But I want it to be a safe place where then we're called to go do some pretty dangerous things in this world. 
for the, call, for the cause of Christ. So we come to this part in the book of Acts, and again, if you've missed all the, the part before, miracle of technology, you can go back and listen to it. Um, and listen to it again if you want. But we're a little more than halfway through the book of Acts, and Paul's on his second missionary journey. And remember, Paul's on a journey that he didn't expect to take. Paul expected to do, he had a plan. I'm gonna go back to the churches that we went to before, and God said, nope, you're gonna go to a brand new continent. You're gonna go to Europe. And we've read about two different places that he's been in. Each place, similar story. Great success, people respond, persecution, Paul leaves. Paul now finds himself in Athens. And so in Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through 34, what we read there is, now while Paul was waiting for them, he's waiting for his missionary partners at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling places, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said. For we are indeed his offspring, being then, we are indeed his offspring, being then God's offspring, We ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead." Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a man, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So here's Paul, and it's very unusual that Paul is here in the city of Athens by himself. Everywhere else we see Paul, he's, he has a partner. He's, somebody's there with him. But he's by himself, he's waiting. And he, he kind of had to leave the, less, the, the last city. And he, he left behind his companions to kind of help establish the work there. Remember, Paul's not one of these guys who just goes and, you know, shares the gospel. You pray the prayer, he moves on. No, Paul is all about trying to establish these churches. But he knew for the good of the church, he needed to leave. So he left. And, but he left behind Silas and Timothy. They're, they're taking care of the, that church, and Paul's now in Athens waiting for them. 
And Athens is in some ways not the great city that it once was when the Greek empire was at its height, but it's still a really important city. It's, it's, a, it's kind of like the center for, of, of, of not just Greek culture, but also for Roman culture. The Romans felt very good about themselves. You know, they had basically conquered most of the Western world, three continents, etc. So I guess they had a right to feel good about themselves. But they also really liked the Greek culture. So much so that, that it was kind of blended and sometimes historians talk about the Greco-Roman culture. And Athens was like the epitome of that. that it was, so it became like this, this kind of cultural center. And if you were somebody who was smart, this is a place that you would go. And, and what we find here, when we describe this first century, what's going on, we, we find this, this unprecedented clash of cultures. The Romans, yeah, they were, they were brutal, they were this big military might, but what they established was they established some level of stability, even if it was enforced by the Roman government and the Roman military. And what happened is, is you had this unprecedented clash of cultures. You also had this kind of, this kind of, in some sense, what they would have thought is enlightened understanding of, all right, we're not going to just try to wipe out all these other cultures. We're not going to wipe out the religions. We're just going to let them be there as long as they're not causing problems, as long as they're not rebelling, as long as they're not leading to some kind of revolution. It's cool. And so they would have what were considered legal religions. And by the way, just as an aside, Christianity, you might think, well, that was a new religion. How did it get, become legal? Well, when it first came out, Christianity was thought to be part of Judaism, which, in a sense, it, it did come from Judaism. And so it had some protection because it was considered Judaism, and Judaism was a, was a legal religion. But this gave the air that, hey, look, you know, we're tolerant. You know, we're, we have this kind of accepting what they probably wouldn't have used the term of pluralism. There is this faith, this faith in philosophy, faith in science, faith in humanity that was there. And we often look back at that and we think like, oh, these people are just all these, you know, kind of ignorant people. And it's like, no. But it's also a polarized society. You certainly have the haves and the have-nots, but you also have you know, the, the Romans and those who want to get along with the Romans and just accept it, and those who, no, they don't want that. There's this serious misunderstanding of Christianity. Now, if I didn't tell you and you looked at this list, you might actually think that's not describing the first century, that's describing the 21st century. And if you thought that, you'd be right. There are a lot of similarities between the first century and the 21st century, especially the first century of the, of the Western world and the 21st century pretty much globally. We're living in like the second generation or third generation of an unprecedented clash of cultures. It's not just because we now, you know, before it's because, you know, we had improved transportation. Now it's communications technology. We can know about things that are happening all over the world. We can hear opinions of people's opinions of other people's opinions that we really don't care about, but they're going to share them with us anyways. We're, we can be exposed to all kinds of different answers to different questions. It's this clash of cultures that has come together. And not surprisingly, some people have responded in the way that, that the Romans did. Hey, we're going to be tolerant. We're going to be pluralistic as long as you don't try to overthrow the system. Don't mess with the system. We'll be okay. We have this, this deep faith in humanity that somehow we as human beings can just, if we just keep trying harder, if we just 
keep you know, getting better, that we'll figure this all out and, and we'll, you know, there'll be no more war. There'll, there'll be no more you know, shortages of food or any struggles. We'll, we'll, there's this future out there that someday, we'll, if we just keep working hard enough, if we just believe in the best in humanity, that somehow you know, we'll get there. By the way, that's what politicians sell you every single election cycle. Have you ever heard a politician say, there's no hope in humanity? No matter what we do, we're just going to end up fighting with each other about something new. That no matter who wins, you know, they're going to do the same things that the previous leaders did, just maybe do them for different reasons. Nobody admits that. Nobody says that. But look back at our history. Oh, sometimes they may come in and they may come in and talk about, you know, the, you know, the future is our children. Let's invest in our children. It's undying hope in human abilities to solve all of our problems. It's, it's not that different. And there's this huge misunderstanding of Christianity. Just like in this, what's happening in the Roman world, as Christianity begins to emerge, at first it's kind of not even noticed. It's just there. The Romans don't really, don't really think about it. But Christianity begins to spread. And as it spreads, even though there's no record anywhere that Christians ever threatened the Roman government, at no point did they ever do that they begin to be attacked, persecuted, simply because they were living out this faith that said there is hope for humanity. We can have true peace. We can love one another. We can be in community. But only if Jesus is Lord. It cannot happen any other way. And when, when inroads start to be made, when not just common people are coming to faith, but, but people in government are coming to faith, people in the royal families are coming to faith, when people in the military are coming to faith, when all of that is taking hold, the Roman government looks for a scapegoat, looks for some, someone, something to push back on. And the Christians, they were the best target. Who better than to pick on than somebody who in their fundamental belief says, we're going to love you. Who better to pick on than when you executed their leader, they believed their leader was on the cross and said, Father, forgive them. And so we find this misunderstanding in the first century and we find a misunderstanding today. What's different today about the first century is some of the misunderstanding is our fault. And by our fault, I mean Christians as a whole or at least people who call themselves Christians. We have 2,000 years of people doing things in the name of Christ that you cannot find any support for in Scripture. There is no support in Scripture for the Crusades. There's no support in Scripture for the Inquisitions. None of that. Forced conversions. You don't find that in Scripture. But unfortunately, if you've never really understood Christian history, that's pretty much all that's taught in history classes. Nobody teaches about the Christians who in the first century when, when people in the Roman culture would take a baby that was either deformed or looked like it was going to die or sometimes just had the disadvantage in their culture of being female. And they would take that baby and there was a place to take that baby and you left that baby until the baby died. No one talks about the Christians going there and taking those babies and raising them, finding a home for them. Nobody talks about the Christians 
who, who went into places and, and brought hospitals, first-rate medical care to places that didn't have that. People don't talk about that. They don't talk about missionaries who are willing to give their entire lives to go and, and bring the gospel to people. In many situations, create written languages where there were no written languages. We don't talk about that. But there's a misunderstanding. There's even misunderstanding we contribute to today. When a lot of us want to keep our Christianity kind of private or secret. Or when, when we hear a misunderstanding, we don't even feel any need to in any way address it. Or if we do address it, we address it because we're so angry and we want to argue that person down. The world Paul's in is very similar to the world that we're in today. It's a very different world from what most of us who are my age and older grew up in. It's a very different America. And yet, this is where God has placed us. This is where God has placed us. And the world today has the same problem it's always had. And the problem that it's always had is that the world is confident that it knows something but is still looking for answers to the same old questions. You talk to a lot of people in the world, really smart, educated, philosophers, scientists, whatever, just some regular Joe. You talk to them today, and a lot of them have got things figured out, sort of. You know, they're going to tell you, like, you know, this natural world, that's all there is. Science has proved that. Science has proved that Creation, there's no such thing as creation. All that happened was there was nothing, and then there was a big bang, and then there was something. Science has already proved that, that, that there's really no purpose to this existence that we have. We're just another biological species that's going to come and go. Science has already proved this is a cosmic accident waiting for the next Thing that won't be an accident when our sun goes supernova and everything we know ceases to exist. People are very confident that's true. And yet they cannot shake these questions. Where are we from? Where are we going? What are we supposed to do while we're here? People who seriously ask those questions and accept as undeniable fact everything about our origins and our destination. People who do that, if they're serious about it, they usually come to one or two or three conclusions. One is they despair. There's a reason in these generations despair and depression is on the rise. Because if you take it seriously and you realize my existence has no purpose other than to somehow participate in an ecosystem, but it has no other purpose, there's despair. You may kind of put that despair on the side because you're just basically entertaining yourself to death. You know, you're watching football, you're going shopping, you're playing video games all the time that you don't think about it. And our world is really good at that. Our society is really good at keeping us entertained. Or maybe you're just so caught up in the day-to-day, -day, just you know, making sure you have enough to live on every day that you don't think about it. But people who do think about it in their quiet moments, when all of those distractions are gone, it ends in despair. For some people, it's not despair. They've kind of taken on this kind of, you know, it works for them. Maybe it doesn't work for everybody. 
And so what they say is, no, no, this is actually a good thing. The fact that there's no design, no purpose to anything is a good thing because you know what that means? You get to make your own purpose. You get to choose whatever you want to decide your life means. And we're all good with that until some kid takes an automatic weapon and kills 20 people in a school because that kid decided, that's my purpose. We're all good with that until somebody ODs on drugs because they felt that was their purpose. We're all good with that until someone is just taking over your company, not because they need to, but just because they can, and you lose your job. We're all good with everybody making their own way. But people, again, who really think about it realize that doesn't work. Oh, they may add to it, hey, you can make your own purpose as long as your purpose doesn't affect anybody else's. How do we live in that world? How do I do anything that doesn't affect anybody else? If I decided today I'm going to relive my boyhood dream and start training to be an NFL quarterback, yes, it's not going to end well. It's not even going to start. But, and I'm going to tell my wife, it doesn't affect you at all. Of course it affects her. It affects all of you. That's all I'm going to do. I've just decided that's my purpose. But it's a lie we tell ourselves. Despair. Make whatever you can out of this world the best you can. And some people talk about, you know, the, the other kind of major response is, well, I'm just going to keep looking. And they're not going to look anywhere beyond this world. They're only going to look in this world. But they're going to look in the natural world. They're going to still look to science. And it's so interesting that science is proposing some of the same things that have always been in Scripture. Because they, science wants to explain. And by the way, I'm not anti-science in the least. I love science. I just don't like when science says that it can answer questions that it was never intended to answer. But have you ever heard about, besides just the Marvel comics, the multiverse? You know what the multiverse is? It's this idea that there's multiple universes. In fact, sometimes they talk about infinite number of universes existing simultaneously with this universe that for all intents and purposes, except in movies and things like that, we have no contact with. So what they're saying is, look, this is the natural world, but there's a bigger natural world where all these other universes are that we don't really know. But they won't allow Christians to say, this is the natural world, but there's a greater existence where God is. The idea of eternality, trying to explain things through eternality, again, that comes, we find that in Scripture. Except instead of eternal God, they want to say there's just eternal stuff. Creation out of nothing. Something that science is you know, trying to understand how can there be creation out of nothing because they know it doesn't make sense. Creation out of nothing, alternative realities, eternality of something. They're all somewhere found in scripture. But people will keep looking, keep believing. Christianity doesn't just provide an alternative. Christianity provides the only alternative. So we see this, this text, and we see where Paul is, and they're wrestling with the same questions in Paul's day. They're wrestling with the same questions. Obviously different, but they're still, you know, the Stoics, you know, they think they've gotten things figured out. The Epicureans think they've, things, they've got these things figured out. And it text starts by telling us that in verse 16 that 
that Paul was, his spirit was provoked. That's just the best word we can come up with the Greek. People don't want to go as far as what it really says where it really has this idea that he's, he's, he's infuriated, he's, he's angry. And he's angry at the, not just the idolatry and the idols, but that of, of the unbelief. He's angry that, that because these, you know, some, some of the people in that culture are following these unbeliefs, that it's going to forever trap them where they are, and there's no escape. And my first point today, what I see when we see from the example of Paul, and what I really understand should be something about our church, is that his church, God's church, is troubled. We are troubled by the false belief in the world. It, it angers us. We mourn. It hurts us to see what, what the world is doing to itself. We're not just okay with it. We're not like, well, you know, live and let live. We're troubled. We can see the tragedy of sin. And it's not just when there's a crime committed. It's not just when, you know, we, we, you hear about a divorce or, or some, you know, other problem that comes along. But we see it every day. You know, we're headed into the Christmas season. The Christmas season is at one time this incredible opportunity to talk about Jesus, but it's also, especially in American society, an incredible display of what happens when the world just kind of runs amok. How many people will just, just give in to the just gross commercialism? How many people will go into debt just to buy gifts that they can't afford? We get so caught up in these things where we don't realize that sometimes the fact that we're not troubled that that's not a problem. It is a problem. I'm not saying you should walk around just pointing out all the problems in the world. I don't think that's what Paul did. I don't think Paul spray painted over the idols. I don't, I don't think he tried to tear them down. But he couldn't just walk past them. I think it's one of the reasons we need joy that comes from the Holy Spirit. We need joy that comes from a deep faith because when we really start seeing the world for how it is, if we didn't have the joy that comes from a deep faith, we would be depressed all the time. But because we know God has entrusted us, he's entrusted us with the gospel, he's entrusted us with the hope, he's entrusted us with the cure, we can have joy because we know we're not alone. We know we're not the only ones. The action point that I wanna to give to, to you today from this point is that we need, both as individuals and as a church, to pay attention to what is going on in the world. And by paying attention, I don't mean you're just choosing sides. I don't mean you're like, oh, those terrible Democrats or those terrible Republicans or those terrible MAGA people or those you know, terrible Pelosi followers. No, that's what the world does. Paying attention is more than just seeing what's going on. I want you to see the second part of this. We pay attention to what's going on and we seek, we talk about, we pray for gospel-centered solutions. We don't just give in to the options that the world presents us. Vote this way, vote that way. Do this, do that. Support this cause, support that cause. No, first and foremost we start 
What is a gospel-centered solution? We can keep changing the things that happen on the surface. We can keep changing the symptoms. But that doesn't actually cure the disease. The disease can only be cured through Jesus Christ. And that only comes when the gospel is proclaimed and people believe. Gospel-centered solution doesn't mean that every solution is, let's just go share the gospel. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about, you know, you going down to the state capitol and, you know, sharing the gospel with your state legislator. If you want to, that's fine. If that's the gospel-centered solution. When we think about the homeless problem, gospel-centered solution isn't, let's go evangelize all the homeless people. Nothing wrong with evangelizing homeless people, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about thinking about if we've been changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, if we have new life in Christ, how then should we, how then should we be handling the homeless problem? How should we be involved in homelessness? And that's just one of so many different things that are going on. If, if we're going to start paying attention, and I want us to pay attention to what's going on in our world, I also want us to, to even more so be seeking, praying, looking for gospel-centered solutions. The great news is that we're not the only church that does, that, that does this. Other churches are way ahead of us, others are behind. But we need to discuss, we need to think, we need to study. The second point here is that the world sees the truth of the gospel as foolishness. Paul is called a babbler. Like, you know, who is this babbler? And the idea there, of those of you who are on Wednesday night when Christopher was teaching, you know, the idea of babbler is kind of based on this word of like a, like a, like a chicken that just kind of pecks at seeds. And they're kind of using that word picture to say like, he's this guy that just kind of gets a few ideas over here, gets a few ideas over here, gets a few ideas over here, and then he puts them all together. And they don't really make any sense. They don't really hold together. Paul is being mocked. And you just have to understand that the world is going to see the truth of the gospel as foolishness. Any of you who engage with people in the world and talk about Christianity in the world will know this. The world firmly believes truth is relative. Christianity is rooted in the idea that absolute truth comes from God. The world firmly believes that if you believe in absolute truth, that you're foolish and or dangerous. The world at large largely believes that the natural is all there is, and if you believe in the supernatural, you're immature or you're superstitious. The world firmly believes that the Bible is at best a man-produced book. And they look at people who believe that it's the revelation of the very heart of God, that it is the word of God, inaccurate and, I mean, not inaccurate, inerrant and perfect in every way. They look at people like that and they think, you're just misguided. You need to be more enlightened like us. The world firmly believes Jesus was just a man and it, you know, executed for his crime, and that's it. What do you think they believe of Christians who believe that Jesus was the very Son of God, God incarnate and resurrected? The world, already, the world believes that if there's any, any goodness out there, it's already in human beings. That each of us have goodness in us, and we just have to kind of foster the flame, and once we do, then all the spreading of goodness will make us all better people. 
how do you think they want to, what, what they, how they respond when they hear that the Bible teaches that, that our hearts are dark, that without Jesus Christ, that humanity cannot escape its sin. The world firmly believes in human evolution, that we can, and I'm not talking about the biological, I'm talking about that we're going to evolve more and more just on our own, and Christianity believes and finds teaching in the Bible that says that that's not possible. If we're going to be better, it's because of what God does in us through Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. The word world form, fully believes, firmly believes that all roads lead to some salvation. Christianity says no, there's only one way. It's Jesus Christ. You see, so much of what's out in the world, they are convinced you are wrong. Those of you who've just kind of hung around Christians all the time or who don't really pay attention to that or don't interact with people, you don't really know this. But let me tell you that, even though they may be convinced you're wrong, most of the people that I talk to, most of the people I talk to, they still have questions. They're not happy with the answers they've come to. I had this like surprising thing happen to me, and you know, I, just, you know, I always talk about how, how it's awesome when God just says, I'm gonna give you this perfect thing, I'm gonna tee it up for you, and you can share the gospel. I'm not gonna make it hard. You don't have to think how to broach the subject or whatever. And I was having lunch, and, and this guy just asked me, what do you think's wrong with the world, and how can it be fixed? It's like, hallelujah, it's perfect, <laughs> you know? And, and, he, and he listened. But our are we ready? Are we ready? Do we even know what we believe? Do we, can we give a defense for the hope that is within us? The action point for this is that we need to know the gospel, and we need to know the gospel not simply as a way to help us you know, have a better life or have a more joyous life or, or to get out of problems or to get through problems, but we need to see that the gospel is not simply Jesus saving us, but he's saving us so that we can become part of his kingdom. And in being part of his kingdom, we are reaching out to others. And however he's equipped us, however he directs. The third point here is that his church is called to live and proclaim the gospel anyway. How did... Luke know that, that one of the philosophers said Paul was a babbler. How do he know? Well, my best guess is because Paul heard him. Paul heard the guy call him, call him a babbler. He, he saw the, the kind of like, yeah, let's get this guy up here. But you know what? In a world that sees the truth of the gospel as foolishness, his church is called to live and proclaim the gospel anyway. Do it anyways. We're called to live. We're called to share. Notice we're not called to convert. That's, that's, that's the work of God. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. But in a world of skeptics and mockers and people that would want to silence us. We're called to live the gospel. We're called to proclaim. There's no guarantees of converts. There's no guarantees of even tolerant, polite reception. Oh, we could be received, and they might receive, but we could also be ignored. We could be rejected. We could be attacked. It doesn't matter. Like Paul, like we see repeatedly again and again, we share the gospel anyways. Paul goes up 
to this place called the Areopagus where these guys would gather and they were, they were kind of the, you know, probably sort of like what we might think of like university professors and other philosophical types and they would sit there and they would listen and Paul knows exactly where he's going. He knows exactly what he's going to, what he's going to confront and if you notice, he doesn't talk to them the same way he's, he's spoken in other places and yet he eventually comes to the gospel. We're called to live the gospel, called to proclaim the gospel. Living the gospel, what does it mean? It means, you know, it means living out, yes, what we see in the word, but, but it, it's not just following words on a page. It means that all we do is done, motivated, empowered by this supernatural love that only comes from God. It's that love that, that draws us together, that holds us together, that makes us be a family, be a community, even though we're very different. I mean, you can go through a checklist. How many people at the church would I actually care about and associate if they, if they weren't Christians or if I wasn't a Christian? You know, it might be a pretty long list. And it's not that you would hate them, it's just that you wouldn't care about them. But this ultimate evidence is living and proclaiming the gospel. The ultimate evidence that, that keeps Christianity spreading is not simply them living faithfully in community, but it's also how they respond when they're being persecuted. The martyrs, they never fought back. In fact, they often willingly went to death. And they had as their example Jesus Christ. But many of them felt like not just that was a great demonstration of what Christ had done in them and their faith, but they also knew that this was where else were they going to be able to show what Christ had done in their life where there could be Tens of thousands of people all watching at the same time, even if all those people wanted to see them die. It's how much we know, like, like the gospel has been, you know, the, the kind of watered-down gospel has just gotten into our lives and into our churches when our whole goal is to somehow not face any kind of pushback or trouble. And yet these guys saw it as, oh, awesome God. <laughs> you actually think I'm, I'm strong enough to do that? That's great. Let's go. Cool. The action point here is simple. Just, we just need to ask God every day. Every day help us grow. Every day help us grow in our faith. And every day, even though we might not notice it, that we're growing in our faith in such a way that others see the gospel. And when they see it, they're ready to hear it. And who better to hear it from than someone who they have seen and they know the change is authentic and it's real. We're not asked to do more than what we know. We live what we know, but we don't settle for what we know. We keep learning and growing more. And the last point is this. His church must understand the world to reach the world. I didn't teach this past Wednesday, but, you know, had I ta taught this past Wednesday, you know, Christopher did a great job. I would have, you know, pulled more of this out. But just let me quickly help you understand. Paul understood the world he was in. That's why he could talk to these philosopher types. He understood that he was talking to the first century version of what are naturalists and humanists, same major groups we have today. But he didn't just understand them where they were. He didn't just understand those that were still caught up in the polytheism and the superstition that came with that. He didn't just simply understand that, but he also understood the reasons. It's not enough just to understand the world. We need to understand the reasons, and the reasons is, is because 
the world is still in the grip of sin. And the problem is the world doesn't know it. What often happens is even some of the well-meaning solutions that the world brings, they're hopelessly naive. They're overly optimistic about humanity. We have to understand the world because I think when we understand the world more and then we see the grip of sin, then we're like how Paul was at the beginning. Our hearts are troubled. We're angry at the, the sin that, that grips them and we're grieving for the fact that they cannot escape because they will not look to Jesus Christ. I think our church has done a lot to try to help people understand the different major worldviews in this world. And I think we need to do more. We need to learn more about how people view themselves and how they view the world around them, how they view their existence, what they think about their own purpose, what they think about where they're from. And the, we need to understand so we can share the truth a way that they can understand as Paul does, but we can do so without compromising the truth. If we're gonna be his church, it's not about trying to make things as nice and comfortable as possible. It's being his church and going and engaging the world wherever he leads, having great joy that God would choose to use us. And then seeing what God will do 